prophecy about himself. Now come down to verse 22. <clears throat> All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Then verses 23 to 27, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now the people in the synagogue were not happy when they heard this because Jesus is critical of their belief in God. Jesus was telling them that even from long ago, foreigners accepted God and followed his commands when his own people would not. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Just moments ago, in verse 22, the people were amazed at his gracious words, and in verse 15, they praised his teaching. But now they're so angry, they want to throw him off a cliff. What changed their minds? Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61, where the prophet predicted that the Lord would send Jesus into the world to preach the good news. Not bad news, good news. And so Jesus used two well-known examples from 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5 to show that God sent Elijah and Elisha to the Gentiles or to foreigners because his own people did not believe in him. Now to help you understand and remember a little bit of the Old Testament history, 1 Samuel is a, largely about Saul 2 Samuel about David, 1 Kings about Solomon and Elijah, 2 Kings about Elisha. Let's look at the story of Naaman and see why the Lord chose this event. I love the story of Naaman. You've heard it many times before, and I hope tonight you'll hear something you haven't heard before that will be useful to you. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. This is how a good writer puts the story together. He gives you the scene and then there's a problem. And the rest of the story is how that problem is going to be solved. God was with Naaman in battles against Israel because Israel at this time was worshiping idols. But the great Syrian general Naaman had leprosy. That's the problem in the story. No one in Damascus could cure him. None of the gods of Syria could help him. Verse 2. 
Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. King Ahab made a treaty with Syria, but there were still areas along the border where they were fighting for control. This young girl was probably taken by Syrian soldiers during one of these battles. Verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This young Israelite girl knew about the God of Israel and his prophet Elisha, and she was kind enough to tell her Syrian master about him. Now, Naam was not, was not only a good general, he was a good man, and this young girl was impressed by his kindness and said, I know where you can get healed. Now, Naaman is going to put a lot of weight on what this young, unnamed servant girl says. Samaria was a city in the tribe of Manasseh, west of the Jordan River. It's built on a hill. It has a flat surface. Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. Naaman's master was the king of Syria, probably Ben-Hadad II, and we know this from 1 Kings 20. The king knew Naaman was a valuable general, and he was excited to hear there might be a cure for him, even if it's in Israel. Verse 5, by all means go, the king of Aram said, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The king is so excited that he sends a letter to Naaman, with Naaman to the king of Israel, who at this time was Joram. Naaman takes a very large amount of money and gifts for the prophet. To understand how much this is, we need to compare what King Omri paid for the hill of Samaria on which the city of Samaria was built. In 1 Kings 16.24, Omri, king of Israel, bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. Now, Ben-Hadad, in his history, tried to take this city three times. It was unsuccessful. Naaman takes with him ten talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 cents of sets of very expensive clothing, which is very valuable in that time. The talent and the shekel were weights, not coins. Coins didn't appear until 700 BC. That's 200 years after these events. And the talent is the largest weight of money in the Bible. It was equal to 3,000 shekels. One half of a shekel was the temple tax. That was also equal to a denarii, which was equal to one day's work. So Naaman brought 10 talents of silver equal to 60,000 days work or 170 years work and two talents of gold worth, worth much more. Now, if that seems a little high, we need to remember that almost all scholars think one talent was equal to 20 years' work. And Naaman brings 10 talents, 
and that's just the silver. Verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king thought the prophet the young girl talked about was under the authority of the king of Israel. So he needed to send a great gift to the king to heal his very important general. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Joram, the king of Israel, knew that only God could heal leprosy. He thinks Ben-Hadad is trying to start a war with him by asking him to do something that he knows is impossible. Joram completely misunderstood how God was going to work through Elisha. Verse 8, Elisha is going to get word of this letter. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. We know from 2 Kings 3, 13, that Elisha did not have a good relationship with King Joram. Joram was the son of King Ahab. He was not as evil as Ahab, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that phrase usually means he worshiped idols. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. As the biblical writers do, they condense a lot of material in one sentence. From verse 15, we know that at this time, Naaman had many people with him. That was necessary because of how much money and gifts he was traveling with. Now the home of the prophet was not what Naaman expected. Elisha did not live in the city of Samaria, near the royal palace where most of the important families lived. He lived in a little house in a small village outside of town. This whole story reminds me of a professor that Spencer and I had at the graduate school, Jack Lewis. He was highly respected among biblical scholars. He wrote 223 scholarly articles for biblical journals and 25 books. He had an earned PhD in New Testament from Harvard. He had another earned PhD in Old Testament from Hebrew Union in Cincinnati. That's the Jewish equivalent of Harvard. He said he wasn't a scholar, but he was a student of the Bible. If someone claims to be a scholar, they must be able to interpret from the original languages. Otherwise, you're dependent on someone else's interpretation. So to be a scholar, the first thing you need to know is translating the original language. He died last year on July 24th at 99. He was born in 1919 in Midlothian, Texas. He was the only per person from the Churches of Christ who was on the translation committee for the NIV. He loved the minor prophets, and so he translated Hosea and Joel in the NIV. One day, Lisa and I had the privilege of eating supper with him and his wife, Annie Mae, the uh, school's librarian, at his home. 
1132 Perkins. And I remember that because it was such impressed on my memory that after supper, he got up and picked up our plates and took them into the kitchen, this scholar in Memphis. It was a little one-level house on the northeast corner of that intersection. But in that little house lived one of the greatest scholars of our time. I felt lucky to know him and to have him for one of my teachers. So you see, Naaman was a little disappointed to see this little house of Elisha. Here he was in his chariot with probably several soldiers with him. He would brought all this silver and gold to a little house outside the city of Samaria. And not only that, he believed the word of this little unnamed Israelite girl and began a search for a cure that ended up at this unlikely place. And so he waited to see what would happen. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elijah didn't even come out of his house. He sent out his servant. But Elisha was not being rude by not coming out of his house. God sent his son in the form of an ordinary man, and Israel did not receive him. That's why Jesus is bringing up this story. They wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. We'll see later why Elisha didn't come out to meet Naaman. The servant of Elisha delivers only a short message to Naaman. A strange message, but a short message. Sometimes the message from God is a short message. You remember the prophet Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh also with a short message. Jonah 3 verse 4. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Five Hebrew words. The short message of Elisha's servant was go wash in the muddy waters of the Jordan. Muddy waters can't heal a skin infection, certainly not leprosy. I had a patient down at the med who him and his buddy were riding in an old van where the engine sat partly inside the passenger compartment and it had a short hood. Gary, you probably remember this, there was a cowling on the inside and you had to take that off you could work on the carburetor. It wasn't fuel injected, it was a carburetor. And it wasn't running right. And so the passenger was pouring gas down the carburetor as they're driving down the road. Well, you gotta understand, all the spark from the coil doesn't stay in the wires going to the plugs. At high RPMs, it'll build up voltage and escape every once in a while. You can see this at night if it's real dark and you race your engine. You'll see sparks jumping to ground. How many sparks is it going to take to blow that thing up? Well, it blew up. Passenger was killed. The guy that was driving jumped out, jumped into a pond to put the fire out. He didn't have another choice, but he ended up dying of mucormycosis, a fungal infection. So the muddy waters of the Jordan was not going to heal this infection. That's a strange message, but that was the message. Naaman and all the people that were with him must have been shocked. 
He'd come all this way, brought all these gifts, and he didn't even get to see Elijah. And now he's told to go dip in a muddy river seven times. Who does Elijah think he is? Naaman is the great general of the king of Syria. He is the commander of the army. People wait in line to see him, but Elijah doesn't even come out. Verse 11. But Naaman went away <clears throat> angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. In the Hebrew, the emphasis is on two words, to me. Naaman thought he was important enough that Elisha should have come out to him. But he didn't see Elisha, only his servant. The world hasn't seen the Lord, but he has seen his servants. Naaman was not an Israelite. He was a Syrian. He was not a follower of God. He was like we were before we came to Christ, sinful and in need of a cure. But notice closely the short message of Elijah's servant. Your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Sounds like the same thing, but they're two different things. Two things are going to happen. The last will be greater than the first. Naaman thought he needed to be cleansed of his leprosy, but he really needed to be cleansed from his old way of life. He thought the prophet would have told him to do some great thing. He thought then he would give Elisha all the gifts, Elisha would heal him, they would have a great feast of celebration, and then say goodbye. But it didn't happen that way. The commander expected a big ceremony. He wanted something far more impressive than a simple command and a promise. There is no one waving his hands in the air. There is no band. There is no worship leader with an emotional message. No one is crying. No one is shouting. Nothing like what happens in worship to the Syrian gods. And so Naaman is not happy about the message. Verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman went off in a rage. He went away, still as the commander of the Syrian army. He went away with his good reputation. He went away with his silver and gold. He went away with his authority and power. But he went away with his leprosy. The Abana River was called the Golden River by the Greeks. It's called Barada today. It flows down the mountains north of Damascus and goes right through the center of the city. The Farpar River begins in the mountains just east of Mount Hermon that always has snow and flows south of the city of Damascus. Both are beautiful, clear mountain rivers you can drink from. How is the muddy Jordan better than them? But that was the message. Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The secret here is that it's not clear water or muddy water that's going to cleanse Naaman. It's the power of God as reward for obedience. Elisha didn't come out to meet Naaman because the general needed to pay attention to the message, not to Elisha. Now, Elisha was probably a very interesting individual with a great personality, 
hardworking, devoted, great example of faithfulness to God. But Naaman needed to focus on the message. He didn't. He went off in a rage. And God is patient with us. We do the same thing sometimes. He'll send some people into our lives to help us. Sometimes we ignore them, think the message isn't for us, not what we want to hear. God knows we are weak vessels of clay. Psalms chapter 78 is all about how patient God is with man. Psalm 78, 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. He knows that we need to be fired in the furnace of suffering to be made into vessels useful for the king. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you just wash and be cleansed? Elisha was a humble man. He spent some time with Elijah, who in 1 Kings 17 helped a poor widow in Zarephath and raised her son. So the two men, Naaman and Elisha, are quite different. Naaman was second in command in Syria behind only the king. But he didn't realize the rank of Elisha. Naaman was the servant of the king of Syria, but Elisha was the servant of the king of kings. But it is to his credit, though, that Naaman listened to his servants and reconsiders his thinking. We can't get so impressed with ourselves that we fail to listen to good advice. And good advice may come from some unusual places. Naaman has come all this way. He now has the answer he was looking for. It hasn't cost him anything but his time. He had nothing to lose. And then he changed his mind. That's why I like Damon. He changed his mind when he listened to his servants. He didn't just try to save face by defending a wrong position. And no one is so small or insignificant that they cannot say something that we need to listen to not even a servant, or even a kindergartner. Lisa and I have a grandson named Hudson. He's got red hair. I listen to everything he says. I know he's two or three times as smart as I am. Sometimes he's really funny. One day after kindergarten, five years old, at CRA, Hudson told Lisa, Mama, I know what heaven's like now. Oh, really, Hudson, what's that? It's a lot like kindergarten. That's one of the most profound things I've ever heard anybody say. They must do a great job at CRA. I have a little book at home with 95 interesting things in it that Hudson has said. If you have small children at home, write down the things that they say, because I guarantee you, you're not going to remember them. Another day when Lisa picked up Hudson at kindergarten at CRA, he told her he wanted to go to the public school. He had some friends that weren't going to go on to first grade in Sierra. They were going to go to the public school, so he wanted to go to the public school. And Lisa said, Hudson, they won't let you talk about God in the public school. Hudson said, whoa, what's the point in going to school if you can't talk about God? The leaders of our country could learn a lot by listening to a kindergartner. And Naaman listened to his servants. He changed his mind after considering what his servants had said. I've written a sermon 
in the Old Testament about servants and how important they are at very critical points in Israel's history. Many servants, and we don't even know their names. We don't know Abraham's servant's name that went up to Haran and got a wife for his promised son Isaac. We never learn his name. There are people here at Valley View that do critical things, and we never know their names. They don't have a high profile. Spencer is a great preacher. He's worked hard, but behind him, we all know there's a little woman named Melissa who is the reason why Spencer is so happy and does such a great job. I wouldn't be here if Lisa didn't help me through graduate school or through anesthesia school, but they don't get the public attention that some of us get, but they play critical parts in the story. The Jews of Jesus' day were so hardened that they would not change their minds even when they saw all the miracles that Jesus did. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Physically, it was like he was reborn. He had the youthful skin of a young boy. He found what he was so desperately looking for, but he found much more than that. Spiritually, he was reborn. God doesn't just give us what we want, he gives us what we need. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. This is one of the three great confessions in the Old Testament. Rahab, Naaman, and Nebuchadnezzar. Great confessions about the God of Israel. Now apparently, Naaman now is talking to Elijah. Naaman is a different man now. He no longer has leprosy. But more than that, Naaman has become a follower of the God of Elisha. He not only got what he was looking for, he got what he didn't know he needed. Naaman changed his mind and did something that he originally thought was ridiculous. He dipped into Jordan and was immediately healed. Now it's also ridiculous to argue whether he was a believer before he dipped or after he dipped because becoming a believer is all one process of obeying the commands of God. And if one intentionally leaves out one part of the process, it's by his own faulty thinking, and that's not obedience. When I was in high school, my father got transferred to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we worshiped in Waukesha. That was the setting of happy days. But there was no Church of Christ in Menominee Falls. So we drove the 17 miles to Waukesha to church. One Saturday night, I was 15, taking a shower, washing my hair, had my eyes closed, and it dawned on me, hell is a place where it's dark. I don't want to go anywhere where it's dark. I might be able to put up a little bit of pain here and there, but darkness, no, I don't want anything to do with darkness. So I decided the next day I was going to be baptized. Now the problem in the story is there was no baptistry at the building in Waukesha. So we had to drive that 25 or 30 miles into Milwaukee to the 35th Street and Cherry Church of Christ where Monroe Hawley used to preach. 
If I would have been killed in a car accident on the interstate on the way to Milwaukee, would I have been saved? It's useless to have discussions like that. Do we not think that the Lord will protect us while we're doing his will? But now don't get me wrong. I still want you to pray for me on my trip to Romania this August and pray for the people I'm going to teach. But there are lots of people in the Bible that took the, their lives in their hand and the Lord protected them. Not all of them, not all of the martyrs, but there are many stories. Naaman was looking to be healed of his leprosy, but God gave him a fountain of youth. So Naaman wants to freely give Elisha all the gifts he had brought. It was a lot of money for a poor man in a small village. It was a lot of money for anyone. Verse 16, the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Naaman was so excited to be healed, he insisted that Elisha take the gifts he had brought, but Elisha would not accept any of the gifts. That tells you that Elisha was a true prophet. People back in Syria had always given large amounts of money to their gods and their priests. But God doesn't demand our money in return for the forgiveness of sins. Spiritually, we're all bankrupt before God. We don't have a penny to pay. There is not enough money in the world to pay for the cure from our leprosy of sin. The blessings of God are beyond payment of money. No, God isn't interested in our money. He wants our lives, all of our lives, all parts of our lives, all that we have and own, all that we are or ever will be. Verse 17. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Now that's a strange request. Naaman is asking for dirt from Israel to carry back to Syria. But the Bible doesn't explain to us all the cultural traditions in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. You remember the story of Abraham. Polygamy, leveret marriage, are customs in Haran where Abraham grew up. We know that because in 1933, discoveries were made at Mari, and they're still going on, where they discovered 25,000 clay tablets written in cuneiform script that describe these traditions. If a man was married to a woman for 10 years and she didn't have any children, like what happened with Abraham and Sarah, then you could take another wife or your concubine, and the first child that she had belonged to Sarah. That was a custom in Haran. If you had no children when you died, your estate went to your highest servant. That was a custom in Haran, we know that. So it's up to us to study a little bit to understand the customs. And you remember what Paul said in Romans uh, 12, 19 to 20. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Sounds contradictory to us in the 20th century. Here, Paul is actually quoting from Proverbs 25, 21. It was a custom in Bible times for people to carry many things on their heads, quite large things, and they still do today in many parts of the world. 
So if your neighbor needed hot coals for cooking, you would give them to him and he would carry them home on his head. Now that's not explained in Proverbs or Romans, but the people of the time understood it. So why does Naaman want dirt from Israel? Well, in the ancient world, it was commonly thought that the God of a country could only be worshiped on the soil of that nation. And so for this reason, Naaman wanted to take Israelite soil with him in order to have a place in Damascus for him to stand on in the temple when Ben-Hadad worshiped his gods and he would worship the God of Israel. He wanted his worship of the God of Israel to be separated from the idol worship of Syria. However, Naaman has one request, verse 18. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. In other words, don't worry about it, Naaman. Naaman may have been in the temple of the God of Syria, but he was no longer worshiping the God of Syria. He was worshiping the God of heaven on holy ground. If you go away from the invitation of the Lord with your possessions and your old lifestyle, you'll take your leprosy of sin with you. The cure for the disease of sin is to follow exactly the commands of God. Although this story was not chosen to teach specifically about New Testament baptism, it does have the pattern. Naaman realized he had a disease. He heard there was a cure in Israel. He went to the house of the man of God. He found the message he was looking for. He dipped in the Jordan and was cured. His part was to dip. God's part was to cleanse. He wasn't cleansed until he dipped. He didn't rejoice until he was cleansed. Then he became a follower of the God of Israel. That's always been the pattern. The prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, foretold of a fountain that could cleanse from sin. Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Tonight, you have come to the house of God. You have the message you were looking for. All you need to do is dip in the fountain. God will do the cleansing. If you need to become a Christian tonight, we ask you to make that known while we stand and sing.